come on a journey with a cinephile. Wake up, sucker. We're thieves and we're bad guys. That's exactly what we are. Welcome, listeners, to episode 221 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. As always, I'm your tour guide here of David Garrett Jr., recording out of Columbus, Ohio. And this episode here for you is going to be my last new year new movie for this year, and that is going to be number 18 that I've done of these. And the two are going to be, I know originally I had said I was going to watch a movie that was on Shudder, but I actually realized that there was a slasher film that came to the Gateway Film Center that is technically a 2024 release, so I decided to go ahead and watch that, and that is Founder's Day. And then I'm going to pair that up with The Cell, which is from 2000, if memory serves. And this makes for an interesting, like, serial killer type double feature movie, or I guess pairing there. And then for mini reviews, my foray through the fours rewatch is The Climax. This is from 1944. And then I gave watches to Blade, The Iron Cross, Daybreakers, A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge, and then got to go to the Gateway Film Center to check out Thirst. So I don't think there's anything else I need to get you up to speed with here then for this intro. So what I will say is thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy coming on this journey with me. Journey with a Cinephile. And for my first mini-review here is going to be The Climax. This is from 1944, directed by George Wagner. Now, this is written between Kurt Sadamak and Lynn Starling. Now, Sadamak did the adaptation. This is from the play by Edward Locke, and Wagner did the librettos. Not really sure necessarily. I'm assuming that has to do with something with music, but this stars Boris Karloff, Susanna Foster, and Turin Bay. This is a horror music thriller film that is from the United States. This is actually one of the lesser talked about Universal classics. This is sitting on a 5.4 on IMDb and a 2.9 on Letterboxd, with our synopsis being... A demented physician becomes obsessed with a younger singer whose voice sounds like his late mistress. So this is a film that I sought out as it was listed in the horror show guide encyclopedia that I'm working through. I was intrigued because it's one of those lesser talked about universal films. Now it's part of that middle of the run from what I'm kind of gathering timeline wise, but I was also seeing this starred Karloff and I was down to check it out originally and I'm now giving it a rewatch as part of my foray through the fours. So where I'm going to then start here is that 
This is an intriguing film because it was originally conceived as a sequel to The Phantom of the Opera. The only cast member that came back was Foster, so instead they decided to make this a standalone film, which I think was a better choice in the long run. So now that out of the way, there is some interesting premise here that is still relevant today and some social commentary as well, and that's toxic masculinity. So before you start to freak out or roll your eyes or anything, hear out what I have to say here. We have Dr. Frederick Honer, portrayed by Karloft, who is in love with Marcelina, portrayed by June Vincent. Now, she's the star of this opera. She worked her whole life to get where she is, and she has a great honor to perform for the king. Dr. Honer wants her all to himself and doesn't want her performing for anybody else. She tells him that she no longer loves him. He then strangles her to keep her to himself. There is a vibe here of domestic violence and not respecting her as a person. I felt slightly bad for him until we learned the truth. This also has the aspect, if I can't have her, no one will, which is a, you know, normal type concept that you hear a lot when it comes to domestic violence so it's just interesting that they aren't just lovers but i'll also say that Karloff does a great job as this villain who is also a mad doctor so i do appreciate what he did there so then the other side here we have franz portrayed by bay now he pushes angela Klatt, who is foster when she is telling him that she can't perform and that's because she has been hypnotized by dr honer and every time she goes to her voice breaks so Franz is pushing her, but he does have her best interests at heart. He knows that she loves reform and that this is what she's wanted to do her whole life. Franz will do whatever he can to ensure what she does and to try to get her back out there, which is nice to see. He is encouraging force and it's positive. I thought that Foster and Bay here were good in their performances. They feel like a happy couple until Dr. Honer steps in. Let me then take this over a bit more that with the hypnosis he does. I thought it was a good aspect of the story. The machine he used was interesting. The problem I have was that it's done with a flashback beforehand. The effect used was cheesy, and then the time that this came out, it makes sense. It's a logical way of doing things effects-wise. I do think it would be better served to not give us that backstory and just kind of let the story develop a bit more because we get it very early on. So let's go over to the acting then. I've already said that I thought Karloff was good as our villain. He is a brooding and sullen, which fits, that makes you feel bad for him until more gets revealed. Foster and Bay were good as his young couple in love. Foster was attractive and her meek nature fit. I also thought her voice was amazing. The change that comes over her character is good until she's hypnotized. Other than that, Sundegard is good as his housekeeper who works for Dr. Honer. She is given more to work with and I liked how that fit in. Now we also have, that would be Gail Sondergaard, I realize I didn't say that. We also have Thomas Gomez, who's Count Seabrook. He's the guy who runs the Opera House. I would also say that Vincent was good as the previous diva that we have here. And then in the future, or in the present, I guess, we have Jarmila Vatic, portrayed by Jane Farrer. thought she was good there. I'd even say that George Dolans, who is Ameto Rossellini, he's good as the co-star to the current diva another underrated performance here is ludwig stossel portraying carl bauman who tries to help angela and franz the acting here is good across the board also have to go into and the last thing would be i guess filmmaking i thought the cinematography was good it captures the opera scenes well and it makes them look grand i do have a negative here though i do think they focus a bit too much and it bogged the story down for me it caused me to lose interest. I will say that they have limited effects. doesn't need them either. It isn't that type of film. The machine used to hypnotize was solid. Other than that, the soundtrack, even though it's not my type of music, fits the movie. 
In conclusion, this is a solid, lesser-talked-about Universal film in their classic run. There are story elements and themes that are relevant today. Karloff makes a good villain, and the rest of the cast around him was good. This is well-made. I thought the cinematography is solid in capturing the opera scenes, but this is something I felt they focused a bit too much on. I don't find them as interesting, though. And I thought Foster has an amazing voice. Not one that I would rush to for a movie. If you like ones from this era, give this a watch. I'd recommend this to fans of Karloff, Bay, Foster, or running through the Universal films. So my rating here for the climax is once again going to be a 7 out of 10. And then for my second mini review here is going to be Blade the Iron Cross. This is another movie that comes in the Puppet Master franchise. This is from 2020, directed by John Lechengo. This was written between Brockton McKinney and Neil Marshall Stevens. Stars Tanya Fox, Vince Casamano, and Griffin Blasi. This is a fantasy, horror, sci-fi film that is from the United States. Currently sitting on a 4.3 on IMDb and a 2.4 on Letterboxd with a synopsis. In 1945, a psychic war journalist gains a telekinetic link to a murderous puppet and uses it to help sabotage a top-secret Nazi experiment that involves using a death ray to transform people into zombies. So this is one that I learned about a few years ago. It took me some time to find this streaming, and I ended up just getting a DVD, or not, a, no, a Blu-ray as a gift. And I'll admit, I'm a big fan of the early Puppet Master series. The Littlest Reich was one of my favorites that came out recently. So I was hoping we'd get more of what we got there and what made that work. Also, Blade is probably my favorite puppet, so there's that as well. So I'm glad he's the first one to get a spinoff. So where I'm going to start is that this is following the line of Axis Termination. It's technically a spinoff though. I do think it's a good idea to do that with Blade since he's one of the mainstay puppets and a fan favorite. What I'm not a fan here is that they change his look. I think I get why and it's probably to do something with the effects, but I'll come back to that. It's a solid move to continue having the puppets be good since they're facing the Nazis. This does fall short outside of that though. So I want to stick with some positive. This is continuing the idea that creating the serum to bring the puppets to life is still an issue. They have a little bit left over from Toulon. Andre Toulon. There is a warning here that I like as well. Elise is a psychic and she's portrayed by Fox. I don't recall if this was something that she was in the previous movie or if it pops up here because she was in Axis Termination. Allowing her to connect with the spirit within Blade was something that I liked. She's also able to give him life on a limited basis. How this concept plays into the climax was something I thought was solid as well. So there's not much more to go into the story here. Outside of the fact that I do like the idea that we're working with this like death ray and that the Nazis are doing it Not anything necessarily new. They are pulling from different things, but I'm kind of critical of full moon when it comes to filmmaking especially with the puppet master series as of late There are practical effects here. We have attack scenes with blades killing not with blade killing Nazis That was fine. The zombie makeup looks good I Also say that when they go practically for the after effects of a kill that also is fine there is CGI here for the use of movements of Blade. Not a fan when they do that. I believe we also have a child or someone small with forced perspective, which that does have charm. I also don't love the look of Blade's face. It is too wide where it looks like the puppet put on weight almost. I'll say the cinematography is solid for the most part. I had minor issues there. What goes back to the effects as well. I will credit what they did with a variation on the original theme. A drawback there is that it's the version from The Littlest Right. Good to know they're at least... No, that's a solid version of the opening Puppet Master theme song. Also, have to go into would be the acting. I thought that Fox was fine as our lead. She's attractive. We see her nude throughout, so if that's something you're looking for. Kazamano is solid opposite her. I'll also toss in Blasia there as well as another guy who he's her photographer. I do like, and I should say actually, Kazamano is the 
detective that's helping her named Jonas Gray. I like they're playing with the idea of the fifth column type secret organization. That's a good touch. In there, we have Roy Abrasone, Bobby Reed, and some other characters as well. There's all, who was the other one I wanted to bring up? Cyrus Hobby. They're all Nazis so, that are hiding in America. I'll also say that we have Angelica Briones and Todd Gajdusek. They were fine, and the rest work in support. The acting here is amateur, but we're working with a low budget so it fits. So all that's left to say is that in conclusion, this is in line with the latest installments of Full Moon for the series. We get a basic story that is limited in what it does. This is playing on how strong Part 3 was with using Nazi as the villains. This feels like an episode of a serial, to be honest, where we just have a new problem crop up. And actually all of these like Nazi ones that have come out in recent memory are in the same boat. The acting is amateur. I like that they gave Blade his own movie, but left me wanting more. This isn't poorly made. The lack of budget is affecting this as well. I recommend this to fans of Modern Full Moon if you're out to see all the installments of this series. So my rating here for Blade the Iron Cross, didn't really care for this one, it's going to be a 3.5 out of 10. Then up next I have Daybreakers. This is from 2009. It was written and directed between Michael Spearing and Peter Spearing. They are brothers. This stars Ethan Hawke, William Defoe, and Sam Neill. This is an action horror sci-fi thriller that is a co-production of the United States and Australia. Currently sitting on a 6.4 on IMDb and a 2.9 on Letterboxd, or Synopsidium. In the year 2019, a plague has transformed almost every human into vampires. Faced with dwindling blood supply, the fractured dominant race plots their survival. Meanwhile, a researcher works with a covert band of vamps on a way to save humankind. So this is a movie that came out right around the time I was graduating from college. I didn't see this until I got it from the library or on Netflix, on DVD, something along those lines. It's one that I don't hear a lot about, so I forgot for a long stretch that it existed. This came up as the next movie to see on the horror show Guide Encyclopedia, so I was intrigued to give this one a rewatch. So where I want to start is that this movie is much better than I remembered. I've already said that I love the world that it's set in, and it's like ours. It's just that the creature that if it was real would be hidden in the shadows is now flipped. Instead, we are flipping it to where the humans are the minority. This gives me vibes of Planet of the Apes, making this world be like ours is slightly different with people going to work and blood being incorporated in normal things that we drink adds another layer for me. It is grounded while still having a science fiction vibe. What makes this work for me is the social commentary. The one that comes to the forefront is the rich versus the poor. This is an intriguing time to see this movie since this is a hot button topic. We have the likes of Charles, who is portrayed by Neil, who wants to find a synthetic substitute because this will sustain the masses. They don't want the poor and the middle class to become feral creatures because there goes their workforce. They can't lose them. Charles acknowledges that the rich will still feed on humans. He just wants them to repopulate so the rest of the vampires are satiated than when that actually happens. So then sticking with this, I do love that the poor are the first to become these bat-like monsters. They look more like Nosferatu Orlok-type vampires. They're deprived of blood for extended time, and they've changed. They can be sped up by feeding on other vampires or even on themselves. I like that they are feral and cannot be controlled. This is the fear of the rich. We also see that the middle class starting to change as well, making it more terrifying for them. There's another way to look at this where it could be something like an infection like AIDS from the 90s or the lesser degree like COVID. The issue is that it isn't affecting the rich here, so that's kind of where I'm thinking about AIDS. Now, I can make the argument that there's a commentary here for that. I should also point out, I think AIDS actually is more of the 80s, but still kind of was a thing in the 90s as well, more of the earlier stretch there. 
So the last bit I want to go into here would be that I'd like to introduce The Cure. The only spoiler I'll give is that we have the character of Elvis portrayed by William Defoe, used to be a vampire that has been cured. Working with Edward, who is portrayed by Hawk, they figure out a way that they can be this can be used, and he uses himself to experiment. This goes further than that, though, as something that happens at the climax. And I should also say, Edward is this vampire who doesn't feed on humans, only feeds on animals, and doesn't... And he goes long stretches without feeding, and he really just wants to find a cure or even just a way where the vampires can be sustained. I thought this was an interesting thing to do with the implications from it. Again, it's like a disease with how rapidly, how rapidly it spreads. So I should be off for the story, so let's go over the act. I thought that Hawk was good as our lead. I love that he's a reluctant vampire. He doesn't want to feed on humans, and later we learn that his brother turned him to protect him. I believe Edward is a scientist and that he would want to find this blood substitute or the cure when evidence gets introduced that it's possible. Neil was a great villain. He isn't mustache twirling. He's more like a rich business person who's corrupt. Then we also have Claudia Carvan who plays Audrey Bennett. She was solid along with the rest of the humans. Defoe isn't given his best performance, but he's still solid. I liked... Michael Dorman as Frankie Dalton, who is Edward's brother. He likes to follow orders, and the more that he sees, the more he realizes he's on the wrong side. I think the acting here is good across the board. Had no issues there. All that's left is filmmaking. I do think the cinematography is good. There's a drab feel to the world that we need. These are nocturnal creatures that the sunlight would kill. I do like the technology that was developed for them as well. That feels real enough. I'll also shift to the effects. They go practical and look good. There is CGI here that does hurt this, though. That is probably the biggest drawback. Not all of it's bad, but it didn't age well. Other than I thought the soundtrack fit for what was needed. In conclusion, this is a movie that is underappreciated one in my opinion. We have a vampire film that has things to say. It is set soon, which is fun since we've moved past the year in real time that this takes place. The world that is built along with the lore is a bright spot. The social commentary is relevant, which I'm a fan of. I thought the acting was good. Hawk, Neil, and Defoe leading the way with a solid cast behind them. This is made well enough. I thought the cinematography was good. The only issue I have is with the CGI. There are times that it didn't age well. If you've never seen this one, I'd recommend it if what I said works for you. This is a decent little vampire film for sure. So my rating here for Daybreakers is a 7.5 out of 10. And then up next for you, I have A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2. Freddy's Revenge, from 1985, directed by Jack Shoulder. This was written by David Cheskin, but then this is from characters created by Wes Craven. Stars Robert England, Mark Patton, and Kim Myers. This is a horror film from the United States, currently sitting on a 5.4 on IMDb and a 2.8 on Letterboxd, with our synopsis being, A teenage boy dreams are haunted by deceased child murderer Freddy Krueger, who is out to possess him to continue his reign of terror in the real world. So this is a movie that I couldn't find for a good stretch growing up. It wasn't until the VHS box set that I got to see this one. The original my grandmother had recorded due to my cousins, and then Dream Warrior and Dream Child always seemed to be on the movie channels. This is up there with the one that I've seen the least in the series. I was excited to revisit this one having watched The Scream Queen, My Nightmare on Elm Street, which is a documentary detailing the life of our star Patton and how this movie ruined his life for a while. I also now have this on Blu-ray, so I wanted to check it out in that format. So I want to start with something that I just said. The documentary surrounding this movie and how it affected Patton is sad. He was a young, gay, up-and-coming actor. There are things that are incorporated into this movie by director Shoulder and writer Chasik that clearly are showing that Patton is a gay person. It might not be a big deal now, but at the time with the AIDS epidemic and prejudices, it hurt his career. I'm glad to see that Patton seems to have found his place and moved on. I will say the documentary also made me respect England and, Ru and Robert Russler even more. They're two great guys in my book. So then let's jump into the movie. 
and what I like about this one this does. Knowing that there are sequels after this, I do think it's a misstep. I know that's kind of contradictory what I just said, but I was talking to my buddy and co-host from the SideQuest podcast of Jake, who doesn't care for this one due to where it falls. He recognizes that if this wasn't a Nightmare on Elm Street movie, it would be, wouldn't be looked at as harshly. Because it is, and it follows the original classic, it is a problem. I think they went too drastic here. They probably didn't think that this would continue to have sequels, so I get it. I think this works better after Dream Warriors, when he's been foiled twice, or after Dream Child, where he needs a new way to get out of the dream world. It's too drastic to be a part two. But that's not to say that I hate this, though. We have a dark take on Freddy, portrayed by England, if I haven't said that yet. But this is a com- This is before comedy was introduced into the series. It could be said he's scarier here than the original. They give him about the same or even more lines. I love that he's messing with Jesse. There are undertones of same gender attraction between Freddy and Jesse. There's social commentary of how it can be looked at that Jesse is gay and fighting his urges. Freddy being this dark side that they're repressing. There's also the literal sense where Freddy just wants to get out of the dream world and using Jesse to do that. Heck, there's even a way to look at this where Jesse is evil with Freddy being that side of him. I love that this can be looked at and interpreted in different ways. So there's not much more I want to explore for the story, so let's go over to the acting. I love that England portrays Freddy and how he does it here. He's such a pro, so I'm not shocked there. Patton is great as Jesse. Even if this hurt his career, the writing does things that hurt the character. So I like what he did for his performance here. Myers is good as his girlfriend, and she is portraying Lisa Weber. If anything, he's the final girl, and she's the hero. Robert Russler was good as Ron Grady. He's the guy who ends up becoming Jesse's best friend. I like that he doesn't mean anything about what he says or does to hurt Jesse. He's just more of a dude and doesn't really think about it. I love the cameo here by Clue Gulliger as his father. And then we also have Marshall Bell as Coach Schneider. Then there is Hope Lang and Christy Clark as well as Sidney Walsh, and the rest of the cast kind of rounded this out for what was needed, acting-wise. All that's left then would be filmmaking. I thought that the cinematography was good. I do like that we see Freddy do something and that it will turn to show Jesse wearing the glove. That is a good touch to blur the lines of reality, even more so when we're getting the movie that's based around nightmares. This place with characters being asleep and not knowing it, which I can't, which can be scarier when you have someone like Freddy after you. The effects were good. They went practical there. Not as brutal as some of the others in the series, but the dark overall tone works. I do think there's some slight issues with dialogue that makes the acting come off awkward. Other than that, the soundtrack was fine. It is a step back, not using the theme from the original, though. In conclusion, this is a solid follow-up to the original. I do think there's missteps with the lore and what they do with Freddy there. What isn't bad is the dark overall tone that starts to go away with more comedy gets introduced. I thought the acting was good. England, Patton, Myers, and Russell are leading the way there with some good supporting cast around them. Thought this was well made. Cinematography and effects leading the way there. Just some minor missteps here and there that bring it down slightly. This would be better served later in the franchise, but knowing, but not knowing that in hindsight being what it is, I'd want to judge this for what this does. I'd recommend this one if you haven't seen it in a while or you love the franchise. Just run with Dark Freddy here. So my rating here for A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge, is an 8 out of 10. And my last mini-review for this week is going to be Thirst. This goes by the original title of Bakjui. This is directed by Park Chan-wook, who also co-wrote this with Chung Seo-kung. And this seems to be inspired by the novel Teresa Requin that was done by Emil Zola. This stars... Song Kong Ho, Kim Ok Bin, and Chao Hee Jin. This is a drama fantasy horror romance film that is from a co-production of South Korea and the United States. 
currently sitting on a 7.1 on IMDb and a 3.8 on Letterboxd or Synopsis. Through a failed medical experiment, a priest is stricken with vampirism and is forced to abandon his aesthetic ways. I don't think it's the right way to pronounce that. I'm assuming it's like his religious ways. So this is one that I originally did a mini review on episode 70, which was Centennial Club number 8, which featured Arrival from the Darkness and Dementor, as this is one that I got to watch for when I was doing the People's Council for the Podcast Under the Stairs Summer Challenge series when they were running through the 2000s. So this is a movie that I'm glad that was on that list and that I didn't pass it over. This is taking a creature that we've seen from the beginning of cinema and giving an interesting take on it, and that would be the vampire. So we have a religious man turning and then seeing the corruption of him as he sinks deeper into his curse's grave. Should say that is Kung Ho who is portraying Sang Hun. He is the priest who ends up getting corrupted and then part of that is being done by his love interest here of Teju portrayed by Ok Bin. The effects help to bring this great story to life, and I think the acting does well. I do know some of the CGI doesn't necessarily hold up for me. This runs 134 minutes, and it really doesn't feel like it. I do think it could still be trimmed slightly and still be just as effective, though. The soundtrack fit for what was needed in fitting the tone and atmosphere. This is well made with the cinematography leading the way. The concept and story as are as well. What I just love here is, like I've said already, is taking this concept and this creature that we've seen already and kind of doing some bit different things with it. And then going back to the cinematography, there is this interesting thing that we also do where they paint their apartment white and it just has this weird feel. And then there's also this sunrise sequence at the end that is just gorgeous. I'd recommend this if you want a bit different variation on the vampire or a fan of this director. So after both watches for this one, actually this last time I got to see it at the Gateway Film Center they're doing a vampire series of films here over the winter. So seeing it on the big screen was also a pure joy and treat there. So my rating, though, after both viewings is a 9 out of 10, and it definitely solidified that for me. So what I'm going to go ahead and do then is get you over to the trailer of my first featured review. You know you don't have to go. Press is supposed to be. actually the reason for this weekend's celebration, the Tricentennial. A town festival with a mass killer running around. Whoever it is is just getting showy. That's how these guys start to trip up. I know there's a lot of speculation. I know there's a lot of rumors going around. What happened that night? Let's all stay close to home. Don't let your children out. Stay safe. starts in one minute. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves Many of you have asked why we are moving ahead with today's festivities in light of the recent tragedy. In these especially difficult times, Founders Day... Don't you dare lecture me about Founders Day. Oh, 
For my first featured review is actually the one that I was talking about that ended up being a little bit of a pivot, but because I got to get to see this at the Gateway Film Center in the theater, and that's Founders Day. This is technically from 2023, but that was when I was doing its festival round and got its wide release here in the month of January. This is directed by Eric Blumquist, who also co-wrote this with his brother of Carson Blumquist. This stars Naomi Grace, Devin Druid, and William Russ while also featuring Amy Hargraves, Catherine Curtin, Amelia McCarthy, Olivia Nickannon, Jace Bartok, Andrew Stewart-Jones, Tyler James White, Eric Blumquist makes an appearance, Adam Weppel, Kate Edmonds, Dylan Slade, Aaron Stores, Patrick Zeller, Jaron Amin, and Callie Beaulieu. This is a comedy horror mystery thriller film that is from the United States, currently sitting on a 4.7 on IMDb and a 2.1 on Letterboxd with our synopsis being, a small town is shaken by a series of ominous killings in the days leading up to a heated mayoral race. I think that's how you pronounce that. It's a race for mayor. So this is a movie that I saw coming to the theaters by me. My wife, Jamie, was asking if anything was showing that she might be interested in. Toss this out there, but she's not a slasher fan. But when I realized this was coming to the Gateway Film Center, I went ahead and made it a point to check this out. I actually got to sit in front of one of my buddies from some podcast groups that I found. And it being a 2024 wide release helped as well. So let me do some featured notes before I get into the movie. And I'll start with our director of Bloomquist. He has helmed eight features and four shorts. This is the first that I've seen. He's done four in horror. He also did She Came From the Woods, 10 Minutes to Midnight, and Night at the Eagle Inn. I've heard of those first two. They're on my list to check out. I just haven't got around to it yet. Now, there are two assistant directors here. First is Cody Boachi. This is their feature film debut. And then there's another one here of Tyler LaValle, and this is their feature film debut as well. Now, as a writer, Bloomquist has done six films and three shorts, has the same four in horror. He also co-wrote this with his brother of Carson. He's done six movies in one short. Shares the same four with Eric and Horror. Then go over to the cast. I'll start with Grace. She's been in four things. First that I've seen. Has two in Horror with this and Bikini Bloodbath Car Wash, which I had not heard of this other one, but the title made me laugh. Then to her co-star of Druid. Has been in 14 features and three shorts. I've seen him in this and the movie Cam. I believe he was a younger brother there, but I could be wrong. I didn't do enough to figure that out, but... Druid has done foreign horror with this, Cam the Pale Door, and Agonist. I've been meaning to see the Pale Door, not heard of that other one though. Then last will be Russ. I've seen him in three movies. He's done 52 total and four shorts. I've seen him in American History X and Cruising, which the last one I put into the genre, or at least very close to it. Now he has five that he's done in horror. Besides this, he has done Deathbed, The Bed That Eats, Dead of Winter, The Unholy, and Keeping Company being officially in the genre. Let's go ahead and get into this movie then. We start with this being seeing Allison Chambers, portrayed by Grace, picking up Melissa Faulkner, portrayed by Nick Cannon. Now, Melissa's father is trying to become the new mayor, and he's running on that this town needs change. His name is Harold, portrayed by Bartok. He is married to Nancy, portrayed by Storrs. Now, Harold believes that how Melissa acts and dresses could cost him the election. Part of it being that she's a lesbian and she is seeing Allison. 
So these two head to the local theater that Harold actually owns. His son, Adam, portrayed by Druid, is a manager there, and he's working. He helped Allison with a gift for his sister. It is here at the theater to pick it up. So Allison also used to work here. Now, we also get to meet Lily Gladwell, portrayed by McCarthy, who used to date Adam. She is now seeing Rob Donahue, portrayed by White, who also works here. They're making out on the counter, and Adam asks if they can knock it off. Now, Rob is annoyed, thinking that Adam is just saying this because that Lily broke up with him, but she acknowledges that he is right. So Allison and Melissa then walk to a local bridge to put a padlock with their initials. Kind of a true love type thing. Allison is gearing up to head to college, and Melissa can't leave, or at least she doesn't think she can get out of this town and wants her to stay. This is interrupted by someone in a truck. Melissa calls out to them and is attacked. She is thrown over the bridge. Allison flees to go get help. This tragedy then rocks the town. It is interesting, though, with how people manage it. So we have Blair Gladwell, portrayed by Hargraves, is the mayor, and she's going against Harold. She worries the death of his daughter will give him an edge in the polls. She decides to, with the help of the council, to have, to continue on with their Founders Day celebration that's upcoming. There's also Mr. Jackson, portrayed by Russ, who is on the city council, and I believe he's a teacher of civics in the high school. He is respected by most and hated by some. This includes a punk couple of Britt, portrayed by Edmonds, and Tyler, portrayed by Slade. So we'll say the murders don't stop there. They rock both sides of the politics here, and it seems that the children of the candidates are the targets. The killer doesn't stop there, though, either. As the Commissioner Peterson, portrayed by Curtin, and her deputies try to get a handle on this before it gets too out of hand. So that's where I'll leave my recap introduction to the characters. Where I want to start is that I'm not always the biggest fan of slasher films. It tends to be the heavy hitters that work for me. With that said, I like what this one does. Seeing that this is using the holiday of Founders Day was intriguing. The killer has a cool mask that's black and red, and it looks like an old man almost. And it has a wig that you'd see with the Founding Fathers. I also didn't realize that they had a gavel with a hidden knife in it until watching this. So these elements were all good, so I settled in quickly. Now, I read the synopsis ahead of seeing this. Knowing that this was based around a mayor election intrigued me. I figured that politics would come into play. What is great here is something that I told my buddy Tony after the movie ended. I'm so glad that they didn't specify which political party Gladwell or Faulkner were. They both are exhibited both sides of the two-party system, and we see the worst of both. I love this idea as either side can look at this, and this hopefully will... Just kind of look at how this is ruined in America. It feels like we, the audience, fall in line with Allison and Mr. Jackson. Where they're not really on either side. I won't give away who the killer or killers are, but I will say I love their motive. What I will say, though, is that we know from the opening kill that Harold's daughter of Melissa is attacked. This makes Gladwell tell her right hand, Oliver Hall, who is Eric Bloomquist, you know, the co-writer and director. Now, she's afraid that this will help Harold win the election. Her daughter of Lily gets targeted, and so does Adam, Harold's, Harold's other son. There are other teens and then adults being attacked, but I like the idea that it could be someone wanting to hurt the candidates. The killer could also want them taken out for how they're acting. Then to end this section out, right before the reveal, I did guess who the killer was. This is a trope that we've seen before and not even that long ago in another slasher film, but that didn't ruin this for me. I went along for the ride. Next, I think I'll discuss will be the acting. For me, slashers either need good characters or kills. 
Grace is good as our lead here. My only issue is that she makes these odd facial expressions and it threw me off. Other than that, she's smart and does well in piecing together who could be behind this. I like Druid as her friend. He is getting out like Allison to go to college. And he does have the town pulling at him, though, to stay. So Russ is great as her wise teacher. There are people who never left and still look to him for advice, which I thought was good. He's snarky, too. Hargraves and Bartok are good as the candidates. I'll say again that I love the lines are blurred, so I couldn't tell what each side of the political system they ended up falling on, like which party was which. I would also say that McCarthy, McKinnon, White, Edmonds, Slade, they're all good as our teens here. I like Curtin, Andrew Stewart-Jones, Bloomquist, and Wepler as the adults who are intertwined in the story. The acting was solid across the board, so I'll credit there. That's what I kind of look for. All that's left then is filmmaking. I thought the cinematography was good. There are some solid set pieces here, like the school, the movie theater, and town hall. I do think the framing is good to hide the seams of the kills. They go brutal, which I do love in a slasher. I'll say this puts it higher for me by doing that. They seem to go practically for the kills, which I love. I thought that I saw a bit of CGI for the blood spray, but not enough to ruin this. And I might have even not seen what I thought I did, that it was hidden well enough and it's actually, you know, practical. So I will just kind of say that. But there is creativity here with the kills. Other than that, I thought the soundtrack fit for what was needed. We'll say once again that I do love the murder weapon being this gavel with a hidden knife. So there wasn't any trivia on the IMDb page, so I will say in conclusion, I was pleasantly surprised by this movie. I'm not always the biggest slasher fan, but I rather enjoyed what this one did. Using Founders Day feels like a throwback to the 1980s for the genre. I like that this has good commentary here that doesn't alienate either side. We have solid enough characters and the motives for the killings was good. I'd say this is well made. The framing, set pieces, and the kills lead the way there. Cinematography was also solid. If you like slasher films, give this a watch. This is a modern one that I rather enjoyed. I might even try to give this one a rewatch later this year to see if it... How it sits with a second time around. So my rating here for Founders Day is a 7.5 out of 10. Not going to do a spoiler section, so let me go ahead and get you over to the trailer of my second featured review. Do you believe there's a part of yourself that you don't show anybody? When I'm inside, I get to see those things. I feel them. girls were kidnapped, tortured, and murdered. Our killer is a white male, about 30 years old. Carl Rudolph Sarger, who has had the house under surveillance for about 20 minutes. He keeps them in this thing for about 40 hours. And after 40 hours, the water starts. And it doesn't stop. There is a girl that is missing. Her name is Julia Hickson. He is the only one that knows where she is. If he was conscious, do you think that he would tell you where she is? Are you sure? I'm sure. You bring in this monster, and you're asking her to go into that mind. She's 
lost. She thinks this is real. I'm going in to get her. My second featured review is going to be The Cell. This is from 2000, directed by Tarsem Singh. This is written by Mark Petrosevich. This stars Jennifer Lopez, Vince Vaughn, and Vincent D'Afrio. This also features Colton James, Dylan Baker, Marianne Jean-Baptiste, Jerry Becker, Musetta Vander, Patrick Bauchu, Catherine Sutherland, James Gammon, Jake Weber... Dean Norris, Tara Subkoff, Laurie Johnson, John Cothran, Jack Connolly, and Kamar De Los Reyes. This is a crime horror sci-fi thriller film that is from a co-production of Germany and the United States. Currently sitting on a 6.4 on IMDb and a 3.2 on Letterboxd or Synopsity. An FBI agent persuades a social worker who is at up with a new experiment technology to enter the mind of a comatose serial killer to learn where he has hidden his latest kidnapped victim. So this is a movie that I remember coming out, but I missed it. I knew that this one had Lopez and D'Afrio. The images from this movie were beautiful, which intrigued me. This was selected by my wife, Jamie, when I asked if she wanted to hit the button on the randomizer. I was excited to finally take this one off my list. So then before I get into the movie itself, let me do some feature notes as this is directed by Singh. He's done seven films in one short. I've seen two. Not in Horror was Immortals. Only one he's done in genre was this. So then we have two assistant directors. The first is Frederick Roth. He's helped on 17 films and I've seen six. Not in Horror, he did Mouse Hunt, Glory Road, and Bring It On Again, which I have seen. Done foreign genre with The Ring, its sequel, and this that I've seen. The only one that I haven't yet is I Know Who Killed Me. Now our other assistant director is Michael Admondson. He has three credits. I've seen two. Not in horror, he did Bubble Boy. This is the only one he's done in horror. Then our writer is Proto Sevich. He's written five things and I've seen four. Not in horror was Thor and Poseidon, which I've obviously seen those ones. This is the only one in horror according to Letterboxd, but I also put I Am Legend in there as well, which he also helped write. Then let's take us to the cast. First will be Lopez. She has 73 movies and two shorts. I've seen her in six things. Not in horror was Ants and What to Expect When You're Expecting, Selena and Jack. In horror, she has two. I've seen both now with Anaconda and this. Then we have Vaughn. He has 67 features and two shorts. I've seen him in 19 things. Not in horror, I've seen him in Hacksaw Ridge, Zoolander, Anchorman, its sequel, as well as Wedding Crashers. Now he's in three in genre. I've seen this and the Psycho remake. I have not seen Freaky, but I've been meaning to. I will get to it at some point. Last is D'Afrio. He has been in 91 movies and seven shorts. I've seen 14 of his things. Not in horror, I've seen Full Metal Jacket, Jurassic World, Men in Black, and Malcolm X. He has four in genre. I've seen all with this, Sinister, Rings, and Chain. So then, for this movie though, we start in the desert. We have Catherine Dean, portrayed by Lopez, is riding a black horse. The imagery is surreal. Now she's talking to a boy of Edward Baines, portrayed by James. She asks questions about sailing and he shuts down. He claims there's a boogeyman after him of like Mocha Lock or something like that. 
So Edward has this change come over him and he disappears. It is from here that we learn Edward is in a coma. Catherine is on a team with Henry West, portrayed by Baker, and then Dr. Miriam Kent, portrayed by Jean Baptiste, where they're using experimental machinery. This allows Catherine to enter Edward's subconscious. They can't let him come out of his coma though as his boogeyman keeps spooking edward so they're trying to get him to break out of this but they can't it is part of this imagery so then his parents are ella portrayed by vander and lucian portrayed by bao chow now they don't think they're going to get anywhere and look to end their son's time with this program so catherine fights to continue as she's convinced that she can help him there is something else in a real desert happening we see carl starger portrayed by diafrio go into a secret basement of buildings out in the middle of nowhere there is a woman being held in a cell that fills with water carl is into body modification and he hangs from rings that are stuck in his back once his victim dies we see that he bleaches the body and then leaves her to be found and she's the seventh victim now the FBI are after him as the synopsis says. We have Peter Novak portrayed by Vaughn as the lead agent. He works with Gordon Ramsay, which that kind of makes me laugh, portrayed by Weber and then Cole portrayed by Norris. They get their first break with this last body. There is a dog hair that is found and it belongs to an albino dog. We then see Carl stalking his next victim. She is taken and put in a cell. Something then happens to her captor though. He's in the bathtub and has a seizure of sorts. He gets out and heads to the kitchen where he has another. The FBI is onto him and bust in, finding him naked on the floor. They need to find this latest victim before it's too late. The agents learn of the institute where Catherine and her team work. They ask to use the machine to see if they can find where he keeps these women before it's too late. Catherine agrees to help, but being in mind of Carl might be too much. She does something drastic that doesn't just jeopardize the experiment, but her own life and sanity. So that's why I'm going to leave my recap and introduction to the characters. Where I want to start is that this is an interesting film to check out. There are aspects of science fiction where this team goes into the mind of a coma patient to see if they can break it to wake him up. What is interesting is that I got vibes of like Michael Crichton's coma. There's direct imagery of like Catherine, Edward, Carl, and even Peter being suspended from wires. Carl does another variation where he hangs from rings on his back. There's also a motif of water that is brought up as to why Carl does this. He uses water to kill his victims, so that's another. And that's actually an interesting way to kill somebody where it would hide fingerprints or type stuff or it'd just be something hard to track down. So that's something that fascinated me as I wanted to kick that my thoughts off with you know those little bits of information there. So this isn't a movie that gets talked about a lot. I'm getting the idea that this isn't the most loved. I can see that. It makes for an interesting horror movie, though. This explores the psyche of Carl. What is interesting there is that Catherine needs to navigate parts of his childhood, meet his inner child to help him, and save his latest victim. There is something that is specific here that happens in his mind to break him. He will never come out of this coma. He also seems like a good guy, but the abuse he went through with his father has created a demon, and that's almost possessing him to do these bad things, and it all but has taken over his mind. This is looking at Carl being a serial killer that was looks like more nurture through abuse to do these things than it did. I also get the idea that he came up in a poor family, so that could play into it as well. Regardless, exploring the mind of Carl and how D'Afrio plays the character was great. He's an actor that I'm a big fan of, and this doesn't hurt that in the least bit. 
Now, something I want to shift over to would be next falls into filmmaking. The surreal look inside of the minds of Edward, Carl, and Catherine are great. It feels like the former and the latter tend to be desert. I'm guessing that Carl is lost, and that's a good representation. Catherine is there to help both parties. Now, Carl's thoughts are of these grand and surreal places. This is made better when the federal agents go through his things, and these are all taken from different images that he's kept. I love that. It helps with the atmosphere. It also makes sense why Catherine gets lost. I'll also credit the cinematography and framing to help bring this to life. This is a stunning movie. The effects we get are solid. We get a decent amount of blood for a mainstream film in my opinion. What is interesting there is that it can be illogical since these things are happening in the mind. I also thought that they do well with the sound design and the music was good. It helps to build what they need to. It's aided by like disembodied voices being heard due to, you know, mostly where it takes place, you know, once again being in the mind. So you would hear things that don't necessarily fit and make sense. But because we're not in the actual real world, I can work with it. I think that I want to finish out then before doing some trivia with some acting here. I've already said how great D'Afrio was. He is terrifying. That's the only thing I left out. Lopez was fine as our lead. I like that she isn't a scientist, but like a child psychologist, like our social worker. That fit. We also got to see her in a pair of underwear, which didn't hurt. Vaughn was solid here in an earlier serious role. He adds a bit of comedy without going too far. I like Baker and Jean Baptiste, the members of Catherine's team. Fun to see Weber and Norris here as their solid actors. The rest of the cast was good across the board. So then, just some of the trivia on IMDb that I found was D'Afrio later admitted that his wife refused to sleep in the same bed with him for two weeks after seeing his performance here. Um, we have a scene where Peter Novak first enters the mind of Starger, and he's confronted by three females with open mouths to the sky based on the painting done by Norwegian painter Odd Nerdrum. Then there's another thing here where Carl is cleaning his first victim, the the scenery resembles the music video Losing My Religion by R.E.M. That was directed by the director here of Sing. Lopez wanted to, the costumes to be more comfortable to wear, but then the costume designer, Iko Ishaoka, advised Lopez to feel uncomfortable because her character Catherine is tortured. The scene in which the horse is cut into segments suspended in glass cases inspired by the work of British artist Damien Hirst. The installation of some comfort gained by the acceptance of inherent lies and everything hmm. the scene where Catherine is chasing carl through a stone hallway right before she enters the room with the horse is based on the painting by swiss surrealist hr geiger called stucked i think that's how you'd say that the costume designer was recruited for this film after receiving an academy award recognition for bram stoker's dracula singh fell in love with the extravagant costume design in the film and asked to collaborate with him on all future projects this worked together on all of his films until her death in 2012 oh, i didn't know that the scene where carl suspends himself on piercings masturbating over the dead body of a woman was not included in the u.s theatrical or home video release out of fear for a potential nc-17 rating this is included on the european release however the scene quality restored in the 2015 u.s blu-ray Release of the film despite the R rating on the back of the case. Nothing indicating that the disc contains extra footage. The extended runtime for this was 107 to 109 minutes. The brain disorder Carl suffers from, Wayland's infraction, is fictional and was created specifically for this film. The director Singh asked Tara Subkoff during an interview if she could swim to prepare her for the role of Julia, to which she responded that she could, and she had been a lifeguard. It turned out, however, that she could not go underwater without holding her nose. Singh 
would have switched her role with Catherine Sutherland, who plays Carl's previous victim, and he had known sooner, but it was too late, and there was not enough money to reshoot the scenes, which was rather troublesome. Some of the costumes in this film, such as the red armor, were reused from Bram Stoker's Dracula. They are based on the appearance of muscle tissue, which is kind of a cool thing there. The success of Silence of the Lambs and The Sixth Sense is what gave Warner Brothers the confidence to greenlight this. For artistic influences, Sing was inspired by music videos directed by Mark Romanek, such as Closer and the Perfect Drug by Nine Inch Nails, Bedtime Story by Madonna, and several music videos directed by Floria, Sing as Monday for Marilyn Manson, Hypomezoliosa, I mispronounced that one, is a rare condition where areas of the body lacking skin color in patches, streaks, or spirals. Neurological findings associated with this can include seizures, developmental delays, and scoliosis. The scene where Catherine gets trapped in a closet and is forced to watch young Carl get abused by the father is shot and photographed to look almost identical to Blue Velvet. In one of the most positive reviews for this film, in contrast with its mixed reception, it was named by the late Roger Ebert as one of his top 10 films of 2000. The screenwriter disowned this. He said that this film barely resembles his original script, which went under several rewrites from uncredited screenwriters through Warner Brothers and New Line Cinema Executives. He said he's not proud of the final product and hopes someday he can get an improved remake. The movie is playing on Catherine Dean fall asleep watching Fantastic Planet, which is kind of a cool thing. I, I did recognize that. The cloth that Catherine removes from her face when she enters Carl's mind bears an image that is reminiscent of the image of the Shroud of Turin. Known as a comedic actor, Vaughn accepted the role of Peter in this and in Psycho as Norman Bates a step out of his comfort zone to play against type in more serious and dark roles, which he goes on to do much better the older he's gotten in his career the exterior outside of the conference hall where Catherine first sees the video of a drowning girl is Mies van der Rohe's 1929 Barcelona Pavilion this was a screenwriting debut for the writer directorial debut of Indian filmmaker Singh whose gorgeous visuals in this film would become their trademark Vaughn and D'Afrio played brothers in the breakup at one point in Catherine's office, there's a small statue of the same strange horse that plays in the beginning of the little boy's dream in the desert. Also in the desert scene, the ambient music that plays there can be heard in the background in the scene of the parking garage where Carl apprehends his victim. Geoffrey had to wear a wig in order to play Carl. The last outfit that Catherine wears while Carl is inside of her mind resembled the Virgin Mary. Earlier in the film, the statue of the Virgin Mary wearing the same exact outfit and the same pearlescent clamshell behind her is seen in Catherine's bedroom while she's watching TV. Sandra Bullock almost took this role. The Maki Lock is named after the word Mucky Muck, which means a person of inflated self-importance. And that's where I'm going to leave what I'm doing here for trivia. And we'll say that this is a solid movie. I'm not sure if it doesn't get talked about due to people not liking it or having issues. I thought this was a solid what it does. This is a surreal bordering into art house with the set pieces. The best performer is D'Afrio, who is great villain. The rest of the cast was solid around him. Thought the cinematography, framing, and sets were great. This does a bit of, I have a pacing issue, and runs a bit long and loses tension but doesn't ruin this. I'd rather enjoyed this film. It isn't great, but what it does well is keep my interest and would recommend it if you want a bit of sci-fi horror with serial killers and exploring the mind. So my rating here for The Cell is going to be a 7.5 out of 10. Once again, not going to do a spoiler section, so let me get you over to one last break before I close out the show. And welcome back one last time here. And just to kind of go through my social medias and stuff, 
If you'd like to send me an email, you can send that at journeywithacinephile at gmail.com. You can send me any sort of feedback or if you have any questions or anything, go ahead and shoot them there and I'll get back to you as soon as I can. Or if you want to send me any screener links or anything like that, anything podcast related, you can send it via that way. If you'd like to read any of the written reviews, I'll direct you to Reviews of the Dead and that's horrorreview.webnode.com. Like to become friends with me on Facebook, I'm David Michigan Garrett Jr. On Twitter, I'm Buckeye from Mish. Letterbox, I'm David OSU. On Instagram, I'm David OSU87. On Threads, I'm David OSU87. And then Journey with a Cinephile has its own Instagram at Journey with a Cinephile, all one word. Now, all of these ones I will be sharing, like my ratings on whatnot. I know for Letterbox, all of the reviews are going to be for horror and non horror alike. Instagram, I will be sharing over there is my different like posters and everything for things that I'm reviewing my personal account you might see some personal pictures every now and then if i can remember to take them and then you know kind of same thing for threads and then journey with a cinephile is going to be more of just kind of posting podcast related different stuff over there and i'll also direct you to the nightclub discord channel as i have a little section over there where we have some good conversations i post all of my reviews and any new podcast episodes or some of the things i'm watching when i actually have time to post that so keep an eye out over there and i'll have the link for that and everything else in the show notes there. And then I'm also going to direct you if a way that you can actually listen to the show is going to be through the Pod Nation TV. This is a streaming service and everything like that. There will be a link in the blog posts for all of my episodes. So if you'd like to listen to it that way, it's kind of a cool little thing. You can definitely do that through like Roku TV and there's some other apps for it as well. Just as another way for you to consume this podcast if you decide to there's also a lot of other great shows that are on that network as well and for the next episode i'm going to be moving out of doing these new year new movies as we move into february so i'm actually going to be watching destroy all neighbors that's for sure going to be a feature review over there i was looking at the gateway film center there's not a 2024 release coming there this weekend so i will go ahead and just slide that movie in there and i'm pairing this up i believe with good manners If I remember correctly, I was able to find this one streaming on Tubi, and this one is has a woman director. I think it's a co-director in this case, but you know, still helming the thing there as I start to celebrate my women's appreciation as well as black appreciation for February. So I'll also have a foray through the fours rewatch, which looks to be Godzilla. That's gonna be the OG classic from 54. And then I'll also have some mini reviews there for you. Not necessarily sure what I'm gonna be watching, but we will you know, have some things there for you. So I don't think there's anything else I need to say for this outro then outside of me just continuing to kind of flounder a bit. So I will say is thank you so much for listening, whatever you do today. I hope you're safe and doing have a great time out there. This is your tour guide of David Garrett Jr. and I am signing off. It had been a wonderful evening and what I needed now to give it the perfect ending. <laughs>